Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear from Dylan Brody. We had no choice but to walk forward and be fearless. And we held hands because we were young men going to Sarah Lawrence College and very secure in our sexuality. (laughs) That and more. But before that, folks, I just want to say that our January show in New York has been canceled. But we will be back at Caveat on February 17th to resume our monthly live shows in New York. And I'm sorry to say that our Risk Live show that was scheduled to happen in San Francisco for San Francisco Sketchfest has been postponed till February 4th of 2023. The entire San Francisco Sketchfest has been postponed till 2023. So if you bought tickets for the San Francisco show, you should have heard from or will soon be hearing from the folks at Sketchfest. Sorry about this, folks. Uh, The new surge in COVID cases around the country has us and Sketchfest taking extra precautions. But we will be coming back on stage soon, so stay tuned. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is S-Tone behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Magical Thinking. This is another episode that was curated by our story producer, Michelle Walson. Michelle went back through our archives to see what might be really, you know, what we haven't run before, but that might make for a really interesting combination of stories to listen to together. And this is another really interesting selection. I'm so thrilled that some of these stories where we thought in the past, oh, we had audio problems, we might not be able to run that one. Then we look back and find out, no, a lot of these are very, very runnable. I think all of us rely on magical thinking 
in one way or another to some degree or another. And I think the reason that can be so tricky is that it can be helpful and then it can become very unhelpful. You know, the line between the two can be very blurry. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story that was recorded at L.A. PodFest, I think in 2014, a story from Dylan Brody, such a unique voice in the whole storytelling realm. You can find him at dylanbrody.com. But before that, a story by Drew Prohaska. Drew is the co-producer of the fabulous show, The Artichoke, in Beacon, New York, if you're ever near there, you got to get over there and check out some of their stuff on YouTube. You can find them also at artichokeshow.com. Here's Drew now with a story recorded at a Risk Live show in New York City in 2018. It's a story we call Magic Man. Ela cria, ele mostra, ela samba, ele gosta. So, uh, I love Christmas at my sister's house. Um, every year, my sister, she kind of pulls out all the stops, you know, everything smells like cinnamon and orange peels, and every year, uh, she sets out a, a stocking for me on the mantle, and uh, Santa Claus brings me the same thing every year, uh, beef jerky, scratch-off tickets, and underpants, and it's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, like, my favorite, my favorite part about Christmas, like, you know, I don't have to do anything but drink her beer and eat her baked treats. And uh, I have one job to do, and that's to be Uncle Drew to her kids, Noah and Katrina. And I have one job to do, and that's to keep the kids occupied while she plays Santa Claus downstairs on Christmas Eve. So about five years ago, you know, when Noah was like four and uh, Katrina was like seven, I'm up in, uh, in Noah's room and, you know, the, the kids are, uh, they're, they're in bed and, and my sister's downstairs playing Santa. And, you know, I, I, I start reading. I knock out a couple Shel Silversteins and, um, and, and, and I get bored. So I'm like, hey, you kids know not to go downstairs, right? And they're like, well, you know, why Uncle Drew? And I was like, well, you know, because Santa's coming. And they're like, yeah, we know. And I'm like, well, you can't see Santa on, on Christmas Eve. And they said, why not? Which is a pretty good question. And I said, I said, listen to me. If you see Santa Claus on Christmas Eve in your living room, the light is gonna be so intense that it's gonna melt your faces right off of your skulls. And they went, and I just went downstairs, I said goodnight, and I kissed him, and I went downstairs, and I opened a beer, and my sister goes, what are you doing, man? You were up there for like 20 minutes. And I was like, I got this, don't even worry about it. There's this this thing inside me, you see, like, um, I've always wanted children, I haven't had them yet. Um, but there's this weird, like, Tim Burton creature inside of me, like, who, like, feeds off of, like, the fears of children, you know what I mean? Like, I really love freaking them out, you know? It's, like, my favorite thing. And, um, I have this, uh, I have this real special bond with my, my niece, Katrina. She's a real sweet little person. When she was, uh, maybe seven or eight, I discovered this thing called geocaching. For those of you who have like a life, I'll just explain it really quickly. Like basically, uh, all around the world, these pock-faced nerds have hidden these like caches, and you need um, you need like an iPhone app, like a, and, and a GPS in order to find them. You know. So one day I was visiting my, my sister, and and Noah was downstairs uh, playing video games or something like that, and and me and uh, you know Katrina decided to go find one of these little geocaches, one of these little treasures. So you know I put her little boots on and I put her little mittens on, and I held her hand, and we went walking, and, and I gave her my iPhone, and she started following the little GPS thing, and we walked down this asphalt bike trail down by this lake, and it takes us like off into the woods a little bit, and we're, we're looking around for it, and then finally we, we end up in front of this big tree with like a hole in it, and Katrina like reaches into this hole, and she pulls out this tin box, and we open up the tin box, and there's toys in it, and there's little uh, baseball cards, and there's coins from like countries, like all over the world in there, and, and she's just looking up at me, like this was right near my house, and I'm just thinking, yeah, this is the best, and I'm like, Katrina, you know that like, you can't tell any of your friends about this, right? This is like a special secret 
treasure. This is only for geocache people. And, and she's like, <laughs> and she's like, she's like, <laughs> And she's like, she's like, no, I mean, I want to tell my friends. And I'm like, no, Katrina, you can't tell your friends. And I'm like, while I'm doing this, there's like grownups walking like by. And, and I'm like a grown man in the woods with like a seven-year-old girl going, Katrina, this is our secret. You can tell anybody. <laughs> and, 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 um, but the thing is, like, it taught her like that everywhere she is on, in the world, there's these little treasures that are hidden right under your nose that you, you just have to to venture out of your house and, and, and look for them, to find them. And, and every time I go visit her, we do. And it's, it's amazing. Now, um, four years ago, I was in uh, Morocco in Marrakesh with my girlfriend at the time. We were having a miserable time. We were fighting the whole time. We got mugged in the main square by five men and two monkeys, for real. <laughs> and, and, um, and I'm just having a real shit time, but, but I knew like I had to bring home some presents for Katrina and Noah. And it's real hard to find toys in Morocco, man. Like, the, it's the kids just like, they kick like old potatoes down the street, man. It's depressing. And I managed to find Noah, like, this little wooden stick that's sort of notched that, you know, uh, it was kind of a stupid little toy. And I didn't know what to find Katrina. So I, I walked by this, this shop that just sold, like, pottery and, and brass things. And I found this teapot. And I was like, oh, cool, man. I'll just buy this and I'll tell her, you know, there's a genie in it, right? I mean, she's a, she's a little girl. She's going to buy anything I tell her. So, uh, so I came back to the States and I go to my sister's house and uh, we're having a big party and you know, I call the, the children around and I give Noah the little, little wooden snake and he's like, he's crazy about it. And then I call Katrina over and I said, Katrina, I have something for you. She's like, well, what is it, Uncle Drew? And I said, I said, I gotta tell you this story first of all about how I found this. And I said, I was in Marrakesh and I was walking through the sooks trying to find a, a, a present for you. And there was this man, this man appeared with an eye patch and a fez and a monkey on his shoulder. And, 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 and he said, can I help you, sir? And I said, yes, I'm looking for a present for my niece. And he said, well, uh, what is she like? Is she special? And I was like, she's the most special little girl in the world. And he was like, I have just the thing. So we go through these beaded curtains and, and there's, the, the air is just filled with incense. And, and he pulls this, this lamp off the shelf. And you know, Katrina's eyes are just like, oh, you know. And, and, uh, and, and, I, and, and he said, now, like, inside this lamp, there's a, a genie. And he's been in there for 3,000 years. And it's, it's very, it, like, I, I really need to make sure you can trust this little girl with this lamp. And, and I'm like, of course, she's, she's a little angel. She's perfect. And so I give it to Katrina, and she's like, oh, my God, thank you, Uncle Drew. And I was like, put your hand on top of the lid. <laughs> I, like, and she's like, oh. and, and I was like, Katrina, there's a genie in there that's 3,000 years old, man. Like, if, if you open that lid and he gets out, he's going to freak out. And she's like, oh. And he, I'm like, he's not going to know where he is. And she's like, oh, oh. And I'm like, do you speak Arabic? Do you speak Arabic, Katrina? And she's like, no, and I'm like, neither do I. Like, we're not even going to talk to this thing. Like, like what are you, you going to do? And, and she's like, oh. and, and, and she walks away, and me and all the adults are like high-fiving and stuff like that. It's great. It's great. We're all drinking beer. It's fantastic. And throughout the entire party, like, I catch Katrina walking by with the lamp, and I'm like, Katrina, hand on top of the lamp. And she, oh, yes, Uncle Drew. And, and, uh, and it was great, man. It was awesome. And um, the next day, uh, my sister invited us over for breakfast. I arrived, and the first thing I said, like I always do when I uh, go to their house, I said, uh, you know, where's Katrina? And I was told she's in the basement. So I go down to the basement, and um, I get to the bottom of the stairs, and Katrina's just looking at me. <laughs> she goes, Uncle Drew, you lied to me. And I was like, what are you talking about? She walks over to me, and she's holding the lamp. She's got her hand on her hip. She holds the lamp out, <laughs> and she goes like this. And she pulls the lid off. <laughs> And she, and she just shoves it at me. And I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're going to let the genie out. And she goes, Uncle Drew, there's no genie in this lamp. And Mommy told me that you got the guy with the eye patch from Indiana Jones. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I, I, so I went up to the kitchen and I, I said to my sister, I said, Claire, you know, what's the deal, man? That was gold. That was amazing. Like, why did you tell her? And she said, she said, I woke up at three in the morning and Katrina was crying so loud because she was so freaked out about this genie. And I, I was like, and it, and it dawned on me, I thought it was funny, but it dawned on me like, I didn't tell her some like blue, like cartoon genie with like Robin Williams' voice was gonna pop it out of that thing. I said a 3,000 year old man was gonna come out of it like it was that movie, The Ring, you know, and, and, and just start yelling at her in Arabic, you know? And, uh, like, and that is freaky, man. And, um, I felt terrible, man. I felt really terrible about it. 
<laughs> um, a little while ago, I got reprimanded again because I'd given another of the children on my sister's street nightmares. Um, my sister had a barbecue at the end of the summer, and uh, and I was I was there, and I was doing what I usually do at the barbecue. I was hanging out on her stoop and drinking a beer with a bunch of eight-year-olds, and and. <laughs> And, and, and there was this one eight-year-old who I could tell was just like a little cooler than the other ones. And my, my nephew Noah was like, kind of looked up to him. And, and like he, this kid said, you know, hey man, you know what we should do? He's like, we should go play in that abandoned house at the end of the street. I'm sitting there like, oh man, this is bad. I'm like, I'm the only adult here. You know, what do I do? Like, I don't want to look like a nerd in front of this eight-year-old, you know? And, 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 and so, uh, so I said, I don't know, man. I heard that house is infested with boglins. And he goes, what's a boglin? And I was like, you don't want to know, brother. And he goes, uh, I don't believe you. I was like, I'll tell you, man, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter, man. I said, when one of those things digs its claws into you and sucks out one of your eyeballs, it's not going to matter whether you believe me or not. And he went, and he ran off to his mom, and it was fantastic. <laughs> But I went inside, I went inside, it wasn't like the same like it was with Katrina, you know, and I went inside and, um, and uh, Katrina's, she's 12 now and she's sitting there in the living room with all the grown-ups and she's conversing with the grown-ups. She's a little lady, you know, and it's, it's kind of breaking my heart. And like, I'm sitting in the living room and Katrina's right there and, and I'm, I'm looking on the far end of the room at the bottom of their stairs, there's a shelf with that little genie lamp sitting on it. And I, it's really selfish, but I just wanted to grab that lamp, you know, and just rub it and just wish, just wish that she was seven, eight years old again. You know what I mean? Because I wanted to tell her, you know, I really wanted to tell her that the older you get that sense of wonder, it starts to erode from your life to the point where you have to go looking for it. And being an adult is hard. No matter how many times in my life I felt like I failed, it didn't matter because as long as she was a little girl, I could do magic. Thanks, happy holidays. For a smartphone? An app that all the people could download and then we make millions. The shit's hard to come up with, man. It's like catching lightning in a bottle. I already got that. You got what? Lightning in a bottle. Really? What's the idea? No, no idea. I got actual lightning in a bottle. No, Le Levi, <laughs> that's just a phrase. I got that, dog. Lightning in a bottle, blip. That's crazy, son. Where'd you get that? Some old Chinese man sold it to me years ago. I mean, that's some supernatural shit, man. Nah, man. All it does is this. I got it. But seriously, man, would it be like an app that reminds you when your favorite television shows are on? No! We gotta address this crazy-ass problem that you got! You still on that? Our next storyteller is another dear favorite of ours. He is going to be opening for David Sedaris twice in November. Uh, once at UC San Diego, right? And once at UC Berkeley. Uh, just such a great storyteller, humorist, just a wonderful person. Please welcome to the stage, Mr. Dylan Brody. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen of my target demographic. <laughs> the second time Jonathan Davis came to my dorm room and said, let's go on an adventure, I was momentarily hesitant. But I said, yeah, okay. It was college, so Ronald Reagan was president, though he did not know it at the time. 
Before you judge me for that joke, let me just say my grandmother had Alzheimer's, and uh, she is the woman who told me, Dylan, we are Jews. We do not believe in tragedy. <laughs> we believe in horror, atrocity, and injustice. And we recognize them all as inherently hilarious. <laughs> there was this awkward moment in her decline when I went to visit her, and every time she saw me, she thought it was my birthday and gave me $5. <laughs> And it was just exhausting to deal with because I had to keep walking in and out of that room. <laughs> and for the record, that is not a self-loathing anti-Semitic joke about how I am obsessed with money. It is a self-loathing anti-capitalist joke about how we all put money ahead of human decency. But I digress. <laughs> Jonathan said, let's go on an adventure. And I said, oh, okay. Fairly early on a Saturday morning, and we got in his car, and he drove me to a place in New Jersey. I do not know where it was. There was no sign that said, you are now entering the adventure zone. There was just a parking lot and then a walk up a hill, and he had made me bring a bathing suit and a towel. And when we got near the top of the hill, there was a long line of people standing and waiting. And we got on line and he would not tell me what was going on. And I began to imagine things that might happen at the top of the hill. We have to be ready to get wet, but it's the top of a hill. And we're all standing in line waiting for it, but I don't know what it is. And I begin to make up scenarios in my mind about what could possibly be happening up there. And I'm getting more and more anxious and more and more frightened as I wait. And I reassured myself with a memory of the first time Jonathan said to me, let's go on an adventure. The previous autumn, there had been a long weekend, and I had planned to just go into New York and see if I could pick up stage time doing comedy somewhere, and I had no real plans. And he said, let's go on an adventure. My parents are out of town. They're out of the country. We can have their house. And we went to his parents' house in Connecticut, which butted up against a golf course. And we took acid. And at night, we went out on this golf course to lie down in the grass and look at the sky while we waited for the acid to hit. And it was a new moon, so there was no light pollution anywhere. There was a starscape the likes of which we in cities forget exists. It was that sky that is dense with tiny specks of light. The Milky Way is an apparent coalescence of lights from one horizon to the other, and they are uncountable and they are unfathomable. And over the next 45 minutes or hours, we looked up at this astonishing sky we began to be able to see the various distances to the different stars, the layers of stars heading off into the vast clockwork cosmos because our eyes were beginning to dilate and we were beginning to trip. And then we walked out into the golf course in the dark, dark night, tripping. And we found a pathway, a cement pathway, and we walked along it and we reached a place on this cement. It was just the barest lightening of the gray around the gray of the greens, this cement walkway. And we followed it. And then suddenly we came to a place where there was the deepest shadow we had ever seen. And we stopped and we looked at it. And we knew that it was a pool of pure evil. <laughs> and that was intriguing because it was nothing but shadow, but we were terrified of it. And we decided we had no choice but to walk forward and be fearless, or pretend we were fearless. And we held hands because we were young men going to Sarah Lawrence College and very secure in our sexuality. <laughs> and we were frightened. And we slowly stepped forward into the shadow and our feet literally disappeared into the blackness. We could not see them. And the blackness was a cold that crept through our flesh into our bones. And we wondered, 
what interdimensional world we had found, what passageway into pure evil we had discovered, and then we realized it was a water hazard. (laughs) And we were ankle deep in very, very cold water. And we began to laugh (laughs) because we were tripping. And for those of you who are too young to know the experience of clean acid, at the same time that we were laughing at our own stupidity and having walked into a water hazard thinking it was something far more important, we were also unwrapping the layers of internal psychic subtext, the idea that we impose danger on darkness, that the reason we imagine monsters in the dark is not that we are frightened of monsters and they might be out there in the darkness. It is because we are frightened of the darkness and we cannot justify that unless we create monsters. And all of those ideas were flitting through our minds as we slogged back to the house, listening to the incredibly amusing sound of our wet shoes. And it changed both of our perspectives on the world and our experience. And I reminded myself of this as I stood online on the way up a hill in New Jersey not knowing what we were doing and he kept grinning at me and rocking up onto the balls of his feet with a secret. And we got to the top of the hill and there was a hole in the ground at the top of the hill with three sides raised up of canvas and hoses pouring water in. And that seemed odd. And no one had asked us for money. This was not an amusement park ride. This was something some engineering student had done. I have no idea who had created this thing. But there it was, hole at the top of the hill with canvas, and one after another, people were jumping in. Years later, I visited the Museum of Tolerance here in LA, and if you've never been, at the end of the walk and the tour, they take you through the showers, from the concentration camps, and I was online, and I was with my wife, and we were walking through, and I looked around, and I said, look at that. We still just walk right in. (laughs) And this was the feeling that I had as we're standing, and now it was my turn, and what was I gonna do? I wasn't gonna, you know, after waiting online, walk away, so in my bathing suit, it got to be my turn, and I jumped into a hole in the ground. I leapt in, and hoped that this was not a clever ploy to kill people. (laughs) And after a while, one side of the canvas started pressing against my back, and it pressed against my back more and more and more, and I couldn't figure out why I was so heavily against that side, and I realized it was slowly curving out through the ground, and then abruptly, there was bright sunlight, and I was 30 feet above a lake that I had not seen before. And there's a moment with adrenaline when the world slows down. And for just a second, I had time to look around and go, wow, I am in the air above this lake and there are hills over there and there are people all over the place down there in colorful bathing suits lying on towels and laughing and pointing at me because apparently everybody who comes out of this shoot has an amazing look on their face. (laughs) And then I plummeted into the ice-cold water that was not at all evil. And I swam to the side, and I found my towel nearer to the top of the hill, and I dried off, and I redressed. And my friend said, do you want to go again? And I said, no point. Now I know what happens. (laughs) It wouldn't be any fun at all. Kevin mentioned that I'm opening for David in November, and he and I had a correspondence for a long time before I began opening for him. And in one of those correspondences, I asked him if he had any advice for me in my career, and he said, any opportunity that comes up, take it. Any invitation you get, accept it. You never know where it's going to take you. I would take that one step further. I would say, if there is any opportunity that comes your way, Leap into it with your eyes open, because that is where the thrill lies. Thank you.
check and it ain't no crack And it really don't matter if you're white or black I wanna take you there like the staple singers Put something in the tank and I know that I can bring you If you can't take the heat, get your ass out the kitchen We on a mission This is Risk. This is Coolio behind me now. <laughs> I've always loved this song, and uh, I thought it would be fun to run it after Dylan Brody's story there. You can look up more of Dylan Brody's work at dylanbrody.com. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr, featuring a little something-something from Kean Peel there. Now, folks, just in case you missed my mentioning it at the top of the show, our New York show in January and our San Francisco show in January have been canceled. We will be back up and running in February with live shows at Caveat in New York City. And the whole San Francisco Sketch Fest has been rescheduled. We're now scheduled for February 4th, 2023 for that show. Now, I want to give a little shout-out here to Shauna Strongen, our latest Patreon member at the $25 per month or more range. Thank you so much, Shauna. And everyone else, there is so much to be found at patreon.com slash risk. So much bonus content. I recently uploaded a personal check-in that was very personal <laughs> and uh, there's so many bonus stories and check-ins with storytellers and staff members there you really uh, are helping us out quite a lot we rely quite a lot on the help from our fans over there and if you would like to make a one-time donation that is at paypal.me slash risk show Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Now, our final story on this week's episode is so fascinating. This one was recorded in Portland at a Risk Live show in Portland in 2014. This is Tracy McDonald. This is a complicated story. There's some disturbing imagery in it around death. But also, there's the use of the slang term to be crazy or to be going crazy. You know, over the years, there have been so many stories on risk about people who, you know, might have been struggling with some sort of mental illness or might have just been different in some, you know, might have just been sensitive in some way or, as they say, neurodiverse in some way. And I think that that whole expression to be going crazy, I I just want to have some sensitivity around that just to acknowledge that. There are so many stories of people who have been called crazy in a hurtful way or who have hurt themselves by thinking, am I quote unquote crazy? So I just want to put out there that that's a slang term, a colloquialism that we are very used to using, but I think we, you know, have to have as much compassion with ourselves and others to realize that, It's a very blurry line for what that could even mean. And no one should be written off as deserving any less respect for being different or for struggling with aspects of their psychology. So that said, let us dig into this story by Tracy McDonald from the Risk Live show in 2014 in Portland, Oregon. It's a story we call the Hanged Man. So when I was 20, I was terrified that I would lose my mind, that I'd go crazy, that I'd lose touch with reality. I had these fantasies, bad fantasies in my head, and one of them, I was sitting in a room at the mental hospital, and I'm rocking back and forth, and my mind just doesn't connect on anything. You know, I'm just kind of worthless. I don't even, I can't function anymore. Or I had scenarios where I would do something crazy, and my hypothetical family would call the cops, and they'd call an ambulance, and I would be taken against my will to a mental hospital. Even worse, I imagined myself getting straight-jacketed and taken away from my home and spending the rest of my life in a state hospital. And last... The worst, I worry that something will snap and I won't be myself anymore and I'll hurt somebody. And after all these scenarios, I thought that if my life isn't a life I love, then why hang out and love your life? But these were all scenarios. They weren't things that had happened. And there was a reason that I was worried about such things that just didn't come into my head. When I was 18, my dad lost his mind, and I lost my dad. He had been the parent of my heart. He was my favorite parent. He was the parent I would go to when I needed support. He always had a lap ready for me, and he would hug me in a beautiful, true way. And He went to all my brother's baseball games, and he'd take us out in the country, and he'd call the cows from the car. So he had the window down. He's like, moo, and they came, you know? I'm like, whoa. But, um, I mean, he was cool. He took my family to Mexico, and, you know, he always wanted the kids to go. So this was a huge loss. And I came home from college, and my dad is sitting there in the dark, staring off into space. And when I'd come home 
He didn't have that sparkle that went to meet my own eyes. He didn't have the hug. He acknowledged me, he smiled, but he wasn't my father anymore. He was finally diagnosed with bipolar, and he had the manic side. And he finally had to stop working, you know. He tried and tried, and the whole family changed, you know. This became a whole new family configuration. And there were some really scary times, like the first time I saw my father in the mental hospital, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed for him. And, you know, I almost couldn't look at him. And if you've ever been to a mental hospital, there are all these people shuffling around, mumbling to themselves, banging their heads. I'm like, my dad is not one of these. He's different. So I finally get to his room, and he's just flat out on his back, staring at the ceiling. And I had to tap him for him to see me. So just all these things again and again about my dad, and I was young. And one of the weirdest things was he had this brand new powder blue Lincoln Continental, you know, like boat of a car. And he came home, and a few days later, he drove it through the wrought iron gate at the Memorial Hill Cemetery. And he broke the gate, he ruined the front of his car, the cops called my mom, and another hospitalization. You know, she had to commit him a lot of times because he wasn't in his right mind. He'd sometimes talk to the TV or he'd hear voices that seemed to tell him things like, we're going to start a new concept in electricity or something, and he was going to become a billionaire. And one of the worst was when he was in the living room, my brother and I are there, and he has a legal pad, and he's like writing and writing and writing and throwing pages down. I mean, it looks like he's got a whole legal pad he's used. And later on that night, my brother and I went to see what it was, and all those pages were filled just with squiggles. So I had this sob almost wanting to come out, and I didn't know what to do with it. I was really afraid. I would go to the bathroom a lot and cry, but I was afraid of feeling that. So my mom didn't do emotions because she was strong, and my brother was a kid, and there was no fucking way I was going to tell my friends about this, about my dad. You know, I was lost. Even my best friend I wouldn't tell. In fact, I didn't tell anybody for like 15 years about my dad. That's how much shame I had around this. So I did all I could do finally. You know, there was really no one to support me. And if I asked to go to a therapist, my mom would have flipped out. But I was left with nothing but to go to the books like I've done all my life. So I look up bipolar with, you know, manic depression in those days, and I find out that I have a 25% chance, because of genetics, of going crazy myself. And that flipped me out, you know, like a one in four chance. I don't like that. You know, there's a good possibility that this could happen. And my heart would just pound, and it would seem irregular. I would feel this energy just rushing through my stomach. It would just be coming down my legs, and I'd feel like I just wanted to leave. I wanted to run. And these things would set me off, you know, with these thoughts and all of that, you know, like recognizing that my father is mentally ill, you know, seeing a textbook chapter about mental illness or a magazine article. All these things could set me off. What I did finally was I pushed the sobs down, and I just pushed my emotions down until I didn't have the thoughts anymore. And eventually it worked. The thoughts went away. Finally, went back to school, and I spent most of my time hanging out with my friends, partying, studying, going to my job and hanging out and partying some more. So I was either busy or drunk or stoned. Great way to push away your fears, you know, especially when you have these really big fears that are so scary. So we're going to flash forward about 10 years. I'm 29 now. I have a husband now, and I have just had my first child. 
And my daughter is 10 weeks old, and almost as soon as she was born, those thoughts came back. And this time they were worse. This time, the most precious thing in my life is the subject. So I'd have these thoughts like I could go crazy and I could hurt my daughter. And just that thought would just make me want to jump out of my skin. So we're in France. My husband is French, and his name is Stéphane. And, you know, I've been having all these worries. So his parents generously decide that they'll take care of baby Zoe for a week, and he and I can go down to the coast. So Brittany is where it all happened. We were just coming inland after spending a good part of the day, wasting an entire sunny day, trying to find a place. We had gone to La Balle, which is a French resort on a beautiful beach, and we tried every other hotel that we saw, and we gave it up. And Stéphane is in a mood. He is pissed off that we didn't get to go and stay on the beach. And he is so French about the way he gets in a bad mood. So it's kind of like the first step is muttering under the breath, but loud enough so that people will hear. You know, you're pretending no one can hear me, but you're hoping that your wife in the next room or somebody hears it. So it's kind of like this, mumbling like, Alors, oh la la, qu'est-ce que c'est que ça? Qu'est-ce que le mec... The fear of it knew, and all this kind of crap, you know, and um, and I understood it, unfortunately, <laughs> and um, and then the next step was blaming anybody but him, you know, like the damn guy at the hotel, he lied to us, and there was a room, or well, you were in that bathroom for so long, you know, we would have found a hotel room if you would have come out on time, <laughs> and that's how it was with him, and he was very French. I'm not saying that being mean is very French, but he was very French. Um, (laughs) Anyway, he is a French man who is very proud of being a Frenchman, and he kind of thinks everything in France is better than everything here, and I agree with him on most of the things, but he doesn't have to say it's better. You know, it's kind of polite not to say it's better, but we're driving my little Galois-smoking, scotch-drinking French husband who listened to Jacques Brel, and we get to this town. Takes, takes is this gray, dismal, tiny little rotten village, and everything is gray. The houses are made of granite, and the streets are made out of bricks that are also gray. And the sidewalks are flush with the houses and flush with the curbs. So there's not a thing that is green or colorful like flowers. And just coincidentally, they're playing like the funeral dirge as we come into town. You know where they ring the bells like, Dung! and then there's a really long time between that and the next one. <laughs> it's creepy. <laughs> but um, anyway, so, you know, that adds to the creep factor. And we've been in the car forever, so he runs in to see if there's a room, and there is a room in this crappy town. So he gives me the key, and I'm going to go up to our room and take the luggage, because I told him he was always doing it, so it was my turn. And he was going to go across the street to get some water and a baguette. So he's gone, and here I am, getting ready to take the suitcase in. So I open the hatch of our little red Peugeot and pull out our suitcase, and I hear a sound like a screech that just went up my spine, like, you know, those goosebumps and shivers you get. And I look up there, up on the second floor of this house, and there's this old lady, you know, like those old ladies who wear black because they're widows and they wear it their entire life. And she had this, like, beef jerky face. And she, <laughs> she was scary, very scary, because she was looking right at me. 
And she was freaky. So I just like, okay, I'm hurrying out of here. And I go up to the back door of the hotel. I lift the luggage, go in, and I notice it's cool. You know, the air is really nice and cool in this hotel, you know, after traveling all day, it, you know, just touching my skin. And I smell somebody cooking some coco vin, you know, the chicken with the wine. It smells really good. And in the very distance, I hear some opera playing. So I go down the hall. I can hear my heels clicking on the tiles. I have to put the bag down a couple of times because it's really heavy. And I come to the end of the hall, and I need to turn left to get to the room. So I turn, and I see this very dapper gentleman, guy in his 60s maybe, He's got this tailored dark suit. He has a shock of silver hair. His shoes are freshly polished, and they are expensive shoes, like those Italian shoes that you can actually smell the leather on. They're those kind. And I can hear a dripping somewhere, but I don't know what it is. And... I noticed something else, you know, this man who looks like he probably had a lot of power in this town, and I noticed there's a rope hanging down from the top of the staircase. Then I notice his neck is twisted at a horrendous angle. Then I see the rope on his neck. I see his blue eyes looking at nothing. And he's swaying just ever so slightly. I don't know what I did next. The next thing I remember was hearing a loud scream and realizing it was me. And I run out, and I'm at the side of the building by the door, like, <gasps> and I couldn't breathe. My breath would not go deep. It would just go about this level. And I notice my hands are shaking, and finally I see Stefan coming, and he, he sees what's going on with her, and he, he grabs my arms, and he looks at me. He goes, are you okay? And I'm like, Stefan, I just saw a man who hung himself. And he's like, what? Yes, Stefan. He goes, no, no, that can't be. That doesn't happen. That's crazy. My stomach dropped about a floor at that word. And I'm wondering, is this how it happens? Did I imagine that guy? Am I really crazy? Is this like what I've been fearing so long? Here it is. Welcome. So I'm trying to get him to go down the hall because I have to know that I really saw a man who hung himself and not some kind of weird thing, a hallucination or something, which would mean, oh shit, I am going crazy. I know that sounds weird, but that's what I needed to feel okay. So I'm like, Stefan, Stefan, you've got to go in there because I saw this guy, but I don't know if it was a hallucination or what. And he's like, Tracy, calm down, calm down. We had such a long day and the sun was hot and you drank some beers and you just had a baby like 10 weeks ago. It was a lamp, simple. And oh, my stomach dropped like two more floors. So I really want him to go in there. I'm like, Stefan, and I'm pulling on him. And then I remember, our suitcase is in there. You have to go in there to get our suitcase. <laughs> he finally gradually goes in there. And I'm like, you've got to look, though. He goes down the hall, and he gets back way too soon. And I'm like, what? He goes, I didn't see anything. Oh, man, that was the worst words I could imagine him saying. This was like confirmation. I'm just like, okay, here it's happened right after I have my baby. I don't know if it's a hormonal crap, but the biggest joy in my life, and it's going to be taken away from me now because I'm going crazy. I could just snap, 
do anything. You know, the baby is so gentle and so small and so vulnerable. I don't want to have this power of caring for something so vulnerable if I'm going to harm it or something. Because my worst case scenario was, you know, what could I do to this beautiful baby? And I had worse scenarios in my mind on that. I saw my baby being taken from me because I was crazy. I saw Stefan just leaving me because I'm crazy. I saw that I may not have my daughter. Stefan may have her, and I might be deprived of that. And my mind also went, well, things get bad enough, maybe I will climb on the Williams Tower. It's a really high building in Houston. So there's really nothing for me to do but go up to the room because I know the truth. So Stefan and I go towards a different door. And I'm like, where are you going? And he's like, that wasn't the hotel door you went through. That was somebody's house. So he goes through the door that does not open to a man hanging from the staircase. And we go to our second floor room with its hideous orange wallpaper and its threadbare carpet. One of those rooms where you want to put a towel on the bed before you get into it. Your own towel, not theirs. (laughs) And... We're sitting down. He breaks off a piece of baguette and starts putting some camembert on it. And I pour myself a glass of wine. And I am busy in my mind. And as I'm thinking all these thoughts that I told you before, I feel like I am going to burst. There is so much energy in me. I am so electric. You know, I just want to go running or I want to jump out of my skin or... I want some kind of relief, and I'm just wondering, what can I do? And I'm sitting there, I get another glass of wine, as usual, and in the distance, I hear a sound. It goes like this, pam, pong, pam, pong, an ambulance. You know, they're all over France, just like they are over here. I'm like, that's too much to hope. It's getting closer. Pam, boom, and louder. And I get up and walk up to the window of the room, and I look down into the street, and I see an ambulance pull up to the house where I now knew that a man had hung himself. Thank you. cold and grey to the far side of town where the thin men stalk the streets while the signs stay underground day after day they tell me I can go they tell me I can blow to the far side of town Where it's pointless to be high Cause it's such a long way down So I tell them that I can fly I will scream I will break my arm I will do me harm Here I stand Foot in hand Talking to my wall Don't set me free I'm as heavy as can 
is all for this week's episode, folks. This is David Bowie behind me now, and we just heard from Tracy McDonald. And our new editor, Hope Brush, did such a great job on that story. I'm so glad that after all this time, we were able to run that one on the show. Well, folks, don't forget that the storystudio.org is where you will find all of our storytelling education. There are so many different ways to get training there. Two-day workshops online, working individually with some of our faculty members. There's our corporate workshops. So many ways that storytelling training can change your life or your career. It is all at thestorystudio.org. You can also hire me personally for one-on-one storytelling training. I'm at kevinallison.com. And be sure to follow Risk elsewhere on all of our social media. We're at Risk Show. Myself, I'm at the Kevin Allison on Twitter and Instagram. And our site is risk-show.com, where you'll find all sorts of information about how to pitch us and the tables of contents of the episodes and a whole lot more at risk-show.com. Folks, Today's the day. Take a risk.
Uh oh, we better call the police. <laughs> <laughs>